Okay, let's all in, uh, go ahead and find our seats, please. If you, uh, we have notes available for tonight. If you still need notes, just go ahead and raise your hand if you would like them. And uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles to John 14. Yeah, just keep your hands up if you need any notes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence in our midst. Lord, thank you for magnifying your son in our hearts, our minds, unveiling, Father, his beauty to us. Lord, we ask you in these next uh, few moments, Father, that you would open up our eyes to your law. Lord, we want to see glorious things, Father, concerning your holy heart. Lord, that the spirit that lives in us to speak to us about our inheritance in you. Father, I ask you, Lord, that you would stir that anointing, Lord, that abides in each and every one of us and make things known to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John chapter 14, I just want to talk tonight about the Father's house and the healing of the world. The Father's house and the healing of the world. Um, the bottom line of what we'll be talking about tonight is how our active union with the Holy Spirit by active, I mean where we are engaged in that conversation with him, how our active union with God is the way to the healing of the world. And uh, it will make a little bit more sense in just a few moments. But the bottom line is this, is that our active union with God, our interaction with him by the Holy Spirit as he is in us, we are in him. The various truths of divine union that we find in John 14. That as we actively engage with the Lord in that place of intimacy, that that is the foundation and the pathway to the healing of the world. In John 14, verse 26, excuse me, verse 27, right there in the notes, that Jesus, he... Um, Right at the end of the chapter, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives you peace. Let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. Now, some, of the, some sessions ago, we talked just briefly about how in John 14, what is happening is that there are, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the glory and the beauty of the access that we have to God through the cross. But he does it by answering four very specific questions. This segment here, verse 27, is part of the answer that the Lord gives to the question of, Lord, how is it that you are going to manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? That's the question that's being answered there. And Jesus 
says, I give you my peace or I give you my shalom. Not as the world does, but it's, it's my peace. It's, it's my shalom. It's my way and my version of it. And then he says, let not your heart be troubled. And part of what is happening here is that he is actually letting them know that he is the pathway to the healing of the world, but to not be troubled. And I cannot think of, um, my opinion, an exhortation more relevant today than the exhortation to not be troubled, to not be afraid. Matthew 24, verse 6, Jesus tells the disciples the exact same thing just a few days before, about two, three days before John 14. In Matthew 26, uh, excuse me, in Matthew 24, he, he tells them this exhortation. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be troubled. Matthew 24, verse 6. And even though in verse 7, it seems like the world keeps on moving into the opposite direction of being healed or being restored or being mended. And so Jesus says, even though things look like they're going the wrong direction, he says, don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. He goes, I am Christ the Messiah, and I will bring about the full healing and restoration of the world. But here in John 14, I'm giving you the pathway of how I'm going to get you there. And it comes through the very simple act, so to speak, of our active interaction, our devotion, our interaction to the Lord. For instance, believe it or not, in these, in these last 30 minutes of worshiping the Lord, connecting our spirit with his by the Holy Spirit, that actually is part of the pathway towards the healing of the world. In paragraph A, in John 13, uh, the Apostle John, he emphasizes the departure of Jesus. The departure of Jesus through the cross is what's being emphasized there in John 13. And when Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to die, uh, this is a very unsettling to them. And one of the reasons why it's unsettling to them is because they had placed their understanding, emphasis on their understanding, of the messianic hope and their own future destiny on the Lord. They had an understanding of this messianic hope. Their entire vision and destiny had been placed on him. And then he says, I'm going to die a death on a Roman cross, and, and their hope and their future vision was dying along with that. It turns out that they had a wrong idea of what the Messianic hope looked like, or they had a wrong idea of how the Messianic hope was going to be brought about. Matthew 24, verse 1, it's an interesting passage. I got it right there in the notes. I always get a chuckle out of this passage. It says that then Jesus went and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. Is that a strange verse? Now think about this. Jesus is 33 years old. He has been to Jerusalem every year. He's been to the temple 
he knows what the temple looks like, then why are the disciples showing him the buildings of the temple? What's going on over here? The Bible doesn't really say, but I got, I got a theory or two. I think they're vying for office space. Because remember, they know that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah is going to bring restoration to Israel. He's going to drive their foreign enemies out of the land. And his 12 disciples are going to be ruling with him. I'm, undoubtedly, they're probably thinking of passages like Ezekiel 40 to 48, where the temple gets restored. If you go to Ezekiel 43, there's, there's all kinds of office space, all kinds of chambers that are being mentioned in, the, uh, in that chapter. The point is, is that these apostles, they were connected with the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, that he is going to bring restoration to the world, he's going to bring restoration to Israel, and that they were going to rule and reign with him. However, they had a perception and an understanding of how this was going to be brought about. And so when Jesus announces to them that he was going to die, it was absolutely devastating to them. Because their understanding was temporal. Paragraph B, when Jesus spoke of his departure or mentioned it, it had devastating effects on them emotionally. In John 13, it's not the only place where they are shook by the mention of Jesus' departure and death on the cross. In Matthew 16, excuse me, Matthew 17, verse 22 and 23, right there in the notes, it said that Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of man, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised. And here it is. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. They were, they were utterly devastated at the news of this. And, uh, and I don't believe they were just simply devastated because uh, they were going to lose a friend, though I'm sure that was part of it. But they knew who he was. In fact, the chapter right before Peter received the revelation that he was the son of man, that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. And that revelation of Jesus being in Messiah for these young Jewish men meant a lot to them insofar as its significance. You know, for us as uh, Gentiles, Christ is his last name. But Christ, <laughs> okay. But Christ is not his last name. It's his title. It's his function. It is uh, the Messiah, it was deeply rooted and embedded in the tradition of Israel. It was their hope. Here they are under a Roman oppression. They've had the cycle of just continued oppression, starting with Egypt and then Assyria and then per, uh, uh, per Babylon and then Persia and Greece and Rome. I mean, it, it, this, this perpetual oppression from foreign uh, invaders. And, it's, and there's a lot to be said about that, but they are longing to be freed. And for the promises that were, uh, were made to them by the prophets, that they would be uh, brought about, that Israel would no longer be uh, 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 the tail, but that she would be the head and not the tail, that she would be the chief among the nations, that she would be God's special treasure, the, the model of all the nations of the earth. And so the understanding of Messiah 
uh, for them was not merely paragraph C. It wasn't merely personal or therapeutic, but it was covenantal and it was global. In other words, it wasn't just for uh, their emotional well-being, though undoubtedly there, and we notice that Christ comes and brings uh, a, a profound restoration and healing of the heart. Uh, but there's more to Christ than the healing of the heart. There are profound covenantal and global implications of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. And, and these 12 uh, men, they are connected with that reality. Though they might have been misguided in terms of the, uh, the way it was going to be brought about, they were connected with a bigger picture. Matthew 16, verse 22, and going a little bit back to the top of the notes there, 16, 22, 23, uh, when Jesus told the disciples that he must die, it says that Peter took him aside and he rebuked him. When, when, when Jesus mentioned his, his departure, uh, it had devastating effects in some occasions. In other occasions, there was anger. They were angered by the proposition that the Messiah would die. In other cases, it created confusion. In Mark 9, 32, it says they did not understand, but they were afraid to ask him. And I don't think they were afraid to ask him because he was unapproachable. They were getting used to the fact that he was talking crazy, so to speak. And they did not want to know the implications of what it is that he was saying. They were, they were afraid of the implications of what he was saying when he said that he would die and what it mean for them. Paragraph C, the hope of the apostles wasn't merely personal or therapeutic, but it was covenantal. It was global. They had left everything for this covenant and for this global hope. Their, their, their personal destinies was completely wrapped up in that hope, this covenant hope, this global purpose. One of the places where we first see the hint of this global purpose is in Genesis chapter 12 when the Lord called Abraham and he says, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This covenant had was focused on Israel, but it had massive global implications. And once again, these apostles, they are connected with this. And remember again, they now understand that he is the Messiah. They have acknowledged him as the Messiah. Peter acknowledged him to be Messiah in Matthew 16. Uh, 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 Peter acknowledged him to be, uh, uh, excuse me, Nathaniel acknowledged him to be Messiah even before that in John chapter 1. Very early on, hey, we found the Messiah. And this was powerful. This really awakened something in their heart. Wow, the hope of Israel is now before us. He is going to drive out our enemies. Oh, wait a minute, he wants us to be on his leadership team? Wow, this is even better than we thought. We get to rule and reign with him. And now every now and then throughout their journey, Jesus would say, hey, you know what? One of these days, they're going to kill me. And one moment, they're angry. Other moments, they're devastated. Other moments, they are confused about what it is that he's saying. I want us to get this because when Jesus tells them, to not be troubled, this is the issue that he is addressing. And in the place of their hearts being troubled, he reorients their thinking as to what it is that he is about and how it is that he's going to bring it about. 
Again, they left everything for this covenantal global hope as their own personal destinies. They understood that they played a critical role in the Messiah's future administration. And Jesus even told them this. Matthew 19, 27, Peter said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, when the Son of Man sits on his throne of glory, he goes, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, ruling the tribes of Israel. It's a powerful prophecy. That's a really powerful prophecy when you're 18, 19, 21 years old. Jesus, when he died and he, when he was buried and rose from the dead, right before his ascension, he spends 40 days with the apostles and he, he's teaching them concerning the kingdom. And the last question they ask him before he ascends into the heavens is Acts chapter 1 verse 6. Therefore, when he had come together, they asked them saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This thing is on the forefront of their mind and of their thinking. I believe that that is part of what touched John so powerfully in Revelation chapter 5 when he saw that no one was worthy to take the scroll. And when he saw that no one was found worthy, it broke his heart. And it says he wept much. And in the place of weeping, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, when you cry, you cry. But when you weep, it means you're crying a lot. And so for it to say that he wept much means he cried a lot, a lot. And he was devastated by what he saw. And the elder comes and he encourages John. He says, John, he says, he says do not weep. He goes, be comforted. Look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah uh, Genesis 49, uh, the, the promised king from the Davidic line, the root of David, Isaiah 11, where we see one of the, cha- one of the glorious chapters where we see the, the full restoration of Israel and God's glory filling the earth. He says he has prevailed. He goes, the messianic hope is locked and secured because Jesus died on the cross. In paragraph D, in um, John 14, Jesus gives instruction Uh, to stabilize the heart as well as to reorient our understanding of how he will establish the repairing of the world or the healing of the world. And uh, tonight you're going to learn a fancy word, tikkun olam. You felt that, didn't you? It's like, man, glory. No. (laughs) Tikkun olam. Olam. Say it with me. Tikkun olam. Okay? It means the mending of the world or the healing of the world or the repairing of the world. And what's interesting is remember that here is Jesus the Messiah. They understand that he is the one that's going to bring the repairing, the restoration, the mending, and the healing of the world. And so Jesus says he's going to die. They begin to ask him questions. And the last question is very interesting. Judas, not Iscariot, there in paragraph D, he's asking a key question about the future promise of the global manifestation of Jesus' glory. And here's the question. John 14, 22. Lord, how is it 
that you will manifest yourself to us, but not to the world. You see, if we don't connect with the fact of who it is that they're talking to and what it is that their hope is, this question doesn't really fully make sense. To give us a little bit of, a bit of a context, the reason why this is an important question, because the messianic hope is seen in various places, but one of the places where it's seen is here in Isaiah 6, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is what? Full of his glory. The whole earth is. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the seas. Isaiah 11, verse 9, the same thing. The whole earth will be filled with his glory. And so Judas, uh, not caught one, not, he's not as scared as the other Judas. He, he gets this. And so Jesus in John 14 has been talking to them about, hey, you know what? I'm going to be in you. You're going to be in me. You will experience me. There will be this great union, this Holy Spirit union through the born-again experience. And Judas is going, hey, wait a minute. You're, you're saying that those who love you will encounter you, and those who don't love you won't. He goes, those who don't love you are the world. He goes, I'm not really tracking here. How is it that we will experience and see your glory, but how is it that the world won't? Because your word clearly says that the whole world will see your glory. You are the Messiah. That's what you are about. So it's a very, very important question. Turn over to page two. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, uh, the apostle Paul talks about this time where God would reconcile, he would bring all things in a natural created order, the earth, and he would take all things in the spiritual world called the heavenly places, and he will bring them all together in one reality in the person of Christ Jesus. It's absolutely amazing. It's really part of the prayer that Jesus prayed when he says, Father, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven coming to earth, the, uh, the, the uh, heaven and earth coming together, being reconciled. And so when we're talking about the earth being filled uh, with the fullness of God's glory, it is the same as heaven and earth coming together and being reconciled. When Jesus prayed, Father, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's the same thing as heaven and earth being brought together, being reconciled. The realm of the spirit and the realm of the natural being brought together in one reality. Now, paragraph A, we're not going to look at all of it because it's a long paragraph. I just kind of have that there for you uh, uh, to read on your own. But it's a quote from an Orthodox rabbi. And he makes this statement that Abraham actually was the first one to understand that God's desire was to mend the world, to, uh, to bring the realm of the spirit and to bring the realm of the natural together in one. That God had always wanted it that way. He wanted heaven and earth to be connected in very, very dynamic ways. And this quote calls that this uniting of heaven and earth, he calls it 
tikkun olam, or the mending of the world, or the repairing of the world, or more simply, the healing of the world. That everything in this life is broken. Hey, don't want to be, a, you know, a downer here for a second, but it's, everything's broken. You know, we smile and, you know, we feel Jesus, but deep down inside, we all kind of got this like, ah, you know. I mean, just the last two weeks alone, I mean, there are three national trials. And of every range of opinion and feelings and, you know, I mean, you know, the verdict comes out today and one group goes, finally, justice. Another group is going, bah! you know, I mean, and the, the amount of uncertainty, beloved, and I mean, this is in the United States of America, a country that actually has prided itself in having a, you know, a, somewhat of a reliable judicial system. But we're living in a time where people are more and more uncertain, even just about that. And so we're, we're shook, so to speak, on the inside. And the scripture tells us that God is going to bring healing to the world, that there will come a time where there will be perfect justice. There will be a perfect economy, where there will be urban tranquility in, in all the cities of the earth where there will be a complete healing of every racial divide imaginable. Poverty will be taken care of. There will be a, a really, I mean, it'll be the best healthcare program ever called By His Stripes, You Are Healed. <laughs> All paid by the government. No, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, okay, grief. All right, behave yourself. <laughs> no, health, I mean, can you imagine a society healthcare all paid for? Taxes go down to 10%. <laughs> okay, I got to bring the spirit back in. <laughs> no, the mending of the world. Where even animals begin to get along with each other. Anyway, Abraham was the first one to catch this vision of heaven and earth being brought together. In Hebrews chapter 10, excuse me, Hebrews chapter uh, 11, I, I got it wrong during the notes. It's Hebrews supposed to be Hebrews 11, 9 to 10. Hebrews 11, 9 to 10. Abraham dwelt in the land. And so in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to leave the father's house. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that at some point, Abraham finds himself in the land. But look what he's doing while he's in the land. Verse 10, it says, he waited for the city which has foundations. And so Abraham had this understanding that it wasn't just about having access to a new real estate deal. Yes, there was a real estate deal, but God had a plan, and that was the mending of the world, bringing heaven and earth together. Paragraph B. So the expectation of the disciples 
was undoubtedly consistent with the general national messianic hope. And again, and they know that Jesus is the Messiah. And so there's this national messianic hope that they have. Jesus is the Messiah. That hope is put upon them, and he tells them, I'm going to die. The Messiah was someone who was going to come from the line of David, and he would come with great power to deliver Israel from Gentile occupation. And he would lead her into his promised glory. And so passages like Isaiah 60 to 66 is all part of that messianic hope. Deuteronomy 28, 13, that you will be the head, not the tail, Israel. Exodus 19, 5, you will be above, uh, you will be above all the people, a, a special people to me, a special treasure. In Jeremiah 31, 7, you will be the chief among all the nations. And so in the messianic age, when the Messiah comes, he would deliver Israel, restore Israel, or restore more specifically the kingdom of David, and he would lead her into a glorious future. Paragraph C, the messianic age would establish a restored relationship with God, a cessation of all conflict. I mean, imagine, I mean, no more wars, no more conflict, whether international conflict, whether cultural conflict, whether uh, 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 racial conflict, whether economic conflict. So, I mean, all conflict will be gone. There will be no more conflict between us and the animals. There will be, no conf- be no more conflict between animals. And that's why you got vegetarian lions all of a sudden showing up in Isaiah 11. <laughs> the lion's sitting there eating with the lamb. The lamb goes, you know, man, I'm glad we're getting along. The lion goes, you, know, you, you guys really did, do, did taste good, though, but... <laughs> eating grass together, you know? It says that a child will stick his hand in a viper's nest. Can you imagine, you know, moms kind of talking to each other, kids are playing around and looks around her and kid sticks his hand in the viper's nest. He goes, oh, you know, he just discovered vipers the other day. (laughs) They're just great, you know, he just loves vipers. (laughs) What am I going to (laughs) do, right? (laughs) Because the hostility between Humans and animals will be gone. Look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 2. This happened after the flood. And fear of you and dread of you shall be on every beast, every bird, every fish. They are given into your hand. There was a time when fear was placed in animals towards humans, and there was hostility, uh, uh, there was hostility ever since. And Isaiah 11 tells us that that hostility will be removed. All this is part of this messianic hope. Paragraph D, sorry, excuse me, paragraph C, the the very last sentence, the Messiah is the one who will bring and establish justice that would result in the tikkun olam, the mending of the world, or shalom. Shalom. Remember John 14, 27, shalom. I give you my shalom, but not as the world does. Paragraph F, nope, kidding. 
paragraph D, that though shalom is most commonly recognized as peace, and we know that, its meaning is actually more nuanced than just peace alone. The peace of shalom, it carried a, uh, various meanings. It, it means completion, prosperity, health, salvation, wholeness. And so the mention of shalom was not just referring to a tranquility, though, yes, there is a subjective inward experience of shalom, but shalom had inward and outward manifestations. The way I like to say it is that shalom is that when everything functions the way that God designed for it to function. When someone gets touched by the healing power of God, that is a manifestation of shalom. Because the body is beginning to function the way that God designed for it to function. And so remember again, they're talking to the Messiah. They're concerned about a messianic hope, and Jesus says, no. He goes, there is, a, there is a messianic hope. There is the shalom. There is the tikkun olam, but it's not going to be given to you in the way that the world does because it's my shalom. It's, there's, there's my way in accomplishing this. It turns out that the way that he accomplished it is through the cross and to calling us to live out the way of the cross. The shalom is the end result of God's justice coming forth on the earth. Paragraph E, God's justice is about wholeness. It's about divine order, everything functioning properly. Justice is mostly, for our thinking, limited to operating socially and legally, and that's a part of justice. However, God's justice encompasses so much more. It encompasses both the spiritual and the natural, including the environment. It, 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 uh, it, it, uh, it involves our homes, our workplaces, governments, friendships, the inner life. At the very core, justice is about everything being made whole. Shalom. Paragraph F, peace by definition has two components. As I mentioned earlier, a subjective inward disposition of the experience of this inward tranquility, and it has an outward condition related to culture, surrounding circumstances, global affairs, and the created order. Paragraph G in John 14, 27 makes two very important assertions. John 14, 27, Jesus makes two critical assertions. He says to them that the shalom that he gives is his version. His version, my shalom, my peace, he says. And, his ver and the second thing he says is that his version of justice is not compatible with the shalom of the world. He has a different way of how he brings this about. For those of you who are going, okay, so then how do we do it? I'm going to bring back to my first statement. 
that our active union with God is the pathway towards the justice that the Messiah wants to bring to the earth. Paragraph, uh, page three, justice begins. Now notice the statement there is very important, is that justice begins. Um, there is more to justice than our active union with God, but it begins with our active union with God with resulting in an inward transformation resulting in right or just actions. The core of justice is right standing with God or our spiritual union with him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. The day that Adam broke fellowship with God in Genesis 3 is when injustice entered into the world. Paragraph C, the born-again experience or spiritual union. And so when Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born again in John chapter 3, then in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, Jesus talks about I and them, you and me, them and us. All of that is the same thing. It is him, and there he's expounding on the born-again experience. But when we're talking about born-again experience, we're talking about coming into that place of union with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 17, that he who has been joined with the Lord is one spirit with him. The born-again experience of spiritual union is the beginning of shalom. It's the beginning of justice. And this is part of Jesus' message to his, uh, to his apostles. He assures them that he is in fact the Messiah and that he will and that he is in fact mending the world by ushering them and others into union with God. With all the talk about justice these days, we, if we look at the news, it really all comes down to this. People wanting justice. No matter what side of the fence you're on, people are wanting justice. And Jesus says, you know what? It starts with you engaging in the act of union with me. Paragraph D. A shalom is as inward as well as outward. Jesus' way is first to establish shalom on the inside both positionally through union with God as well as the experiencing of the life of Christ on the inside spiritual pleasures that results in the experience of peace, number one, and number two, and the expression of peace, the expression of justice. We call it holiness. But the expression of obedience comes from the inward transformation. Look what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. One of the great challenges in our day, and this is true, I'm sorry to say this, but this is true for left and for right is that everyone nearly is thinking about their justice 
and almost all of it has to do with the external transformation while the inward uh, 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 depravity is, remains untouched. And beloved, if the outside, you know what, if we, if, uh, please hear me when I say this. Uh, don't misunderstand me and don't email me. <laughs> no, just don't. Just, just get what I'm saying. <laughs> if we were to have all the laws changed in America, everything functioned the way that we are saying it needs to function, but if the inward life remains untouched, we will be a pharisaical nation at best. Because righteousness doesn't come by the law. But it comes by faith. To put some of you at ease, I'll give you a little qualifier. Yeah, let's have good laws. It brings restraint on so many levels, and it brings order, and it brings safety to society. But let's not confuse that with the righteousness of God. He looked at the Pharisees, and he says, you clean the outside of the cup. These brothers tithe on everything. Tithe on everything. They knew the word of God inside out. Do you know that they were radical about missions? A couple of verses before, Matthew 23, Jesus says, you go over land and sea to make converts. They had an evangelistic movement. There you have it. Had a, the Pharisees had a missions movement, had a giving movement, had a Bible study movement, and all of this stuff. And Jesus goes, but on the inside, he goes, you're... Your, your inner life, because you need to be born again. You need to come into union with the very life of God. He goes, outside of that, there is no justice. He continues, blind Pharisees, first, here it is, first clean. It's about the issue of priority. He goes, first clean the inside of the cup, that the outside might be clean as well. He wants the outside of the cup clean. But it comes from the inside out. In John 14, Jesus reorients the thinking of the disciples because they were of that mindset. They were ready for the exterior of everything around them to change by the power of the Messiah. And Jesus goes, no, he goes, that's not my way. He goes, there is a deeper problem. It's the issue of sin and the, and the necessity of an inward awakening, being raised from death to life and being yoked with the very life of God through union with the Spirit and then actively engaging God through that union. For our context today, the the, the thank you, show me more. And so, I want to change the world. Well, how are you going to change the world? Thank you, show me more. It, no, really, it's where we start to go on the pathway with the Messiah to see the mending of the world. Paragraph F. 
Jesus' shalom, the kingdom in this age, will firstly have a predominant, not, a, not only, but a predominant manifestation on the inside. The kingdom in this age will have a predominant inward manifestation. Not, a only, not only inward, but a predominant inward manifestation with some external and some very powerful external expression. But the inward transformation through union with God. So the shalom, the kingdom of God in this age will firstly have a predominant, not a soul, inward manifestation, and it will have an external eschatological or end time expression in the next stage when Jesus the Messiah returns and brings heaven to earth and establishes, here it is, his father's house, the new Jerusalem on the earth. Let's go to page four. So John 14, 27, Jesus says, look, he goes, I give you shalom. I give you my shalom, but not as the world does. The inward peace, the inward tranquility comes through this active intimacy with the Lord. In fact, it is a shalom that is, the inward shalom that is not dependent on the outward circumstances. There's, there's, there's coming a growing end time shaking where everything that can be shaken will be shaken, but according to Hebrews, but we've been given a kingdom inwardly that cannot be shaken. And so Jesus says, don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Number one, I will give you the inward shalom that comes through interacting with me in that place of intimacy. And secondly, I will bring the external shalom in time when I return, bringing perfect justice. Now, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, is the um, sister passage to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, Paul says that God in the fullness of time, he would gather all things in heaven and on earth in Christ and make them one. But in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, he adds another dimension to this. He shows us how it is that God will bring the tikkun olam, how God is going to repair the world, how God is going to mend and repair and, and entirely hook up and connect and consume the created order, natural created order with the things of heaven. Colossians 1, 19 to 20, he says, For it pleased the Father that in him the fullness should dwell, and that by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made shalom or peace through, here it is, the blood of his cross. It was through the cross that Jesus would accomplish the healing of the world. What does it mean 
by through the cross. Number one, through the cross, and that it takes away the sin of the world, number one. And number two, that, uh, that those who model, that those who live the life of the cross, that is the pathway to the healing of the world, the embracing of the love of God. Receiving the love of God and walking out the love of God as seen in the scripture. Paragraph B, Jesus establishes his peace on earth through the finished work of the cross and his people walking out the way of the cross, which is the embracing, the experiencing, and the expressing of the love of God. What I mean by the way of the cross, it is receiving it or embracing it. It is the experiencing and the expressing of the love of God. Because the love of God is the way of the cross. Now, in paragraph C, in, the, in John's gospel, Jesus mentions the Father's house. He mentions it twice. The Father's house is mentioned twice. The first time it's mentioned is mentioned in John chapter 2, verse 16, uh, where Jesus is referring to the temple in Jerusalem. And then in John 14, 2, it's mentioned a second time, and I believe that is pointing to the heavenly temple. Uh, there are at least three or four more components to the Father's house, but for our purpose tonight, that one of the components of the Father's house is referred to the heavenly temple. The temple on earth is called the Father's house, and ultimately, the heavenly temple is called the Father's house, the New Jerusalem. Now, in the ancient world, the temple or mountains were seen as the connecting point between heaven and earth. That's why we see so many references to the mountain. They, they believed that because of, you know, because of the height that mountains were the connect point between heaven and earth. And oftentimes, the mountain of the Lord and the temple or the house of the Lord are often used interchangeably because the temple was also seen as the connect point between heaven and earth. Now think about this for a second. I was not going to talk about this tonight, but while we're in the mood, think about this. If the temple is the connect point between heaven and earth or the gateway between heaven and earth, guess what? Guess what you are? You, your bodies, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Together as the people of God, we are the temple of God, the connect point through Christ between heaven and earth, allowing us to experience spiritual blessings in every place, just like it says in Ephesians. The idea of tikkun olam included the connection between heaven and earth. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And there you can put in parentheses, the Father's house. Revelation 21, 10, said the worship team come up. Revelation 21, 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and a high mountain, and he showed me the great and holy city. Here it is, the temple, the heavenly temple, and this high and this great mountain. Paragraph E, the experience of inward peace in this age 
through the appropriating of union we have with Christ and the access that we have to the city and the mountain of the Lord. Say this again, the inward engaging of this union that we have with Christ is the way that we access the heavenly city and the mountain of the Lord. You know, I've been thinking about everything that's taken place um, here in this country, the things that are happening all across just the nations of the earth. Read the news, and it's just all kinds of things that are happening. The uncertainty about our economy, national vulnerability, our justice systems, our, our economic systems, and, and yet we see some positive things that are happening, like, for instance, the thing that Jonathan Baldwin was telling us about the last uh, uh, time we were together about the, the uh, uh, Mississippi making a motion for the ending of, uh, of, of Roe versus Wade. So all kinds of things are happening. And then dynamics, interesting dynamics that are happening um, in the Middle East. Um, then we've got what is happening with the pandemic and uh, uh, the, the, the confusion and the uncertainties and the opinions and the strife. I mean, all these different dynamics. And I look at all of that and I go, you know what? I know what I need to do. I need to actively engage in that union that we have with God. You know, I was thinking tonight about the, the trials up in Wisconsin and, you know, just, again, the uncertainty of how people are going to respond and would respond or won't respond. And, and I said, you know what, Lord, I'm going to try something different. I'm not going to set myself up to simply assume that what's going to happen is what the news says that's going to happen. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just increase the inward conversation. Father, thank you for show me more. Release peace on Wisconsin. <laughs> and that's what I did today. Just thought today. Father, thank you for whatever. Lord, show me more. Lord, release peace. Lord, touch people. Beloved, that is one of, that's the primary way for us forward as believers. The shalom of God, the tikkun olam, the repairing of the world is our engagement with the Father's house. Let's stand. Again, there's all kinds of things going on in society. There's all kinds of things going on in our personal life. And some real decisions that some of you need to make. Trials, you need wisdom to address certain things in your life that are very, very, very important. I want to encourage you tonight you know, just to take just a, an extra effort just to engage in the simple phrases of connecting with Jesus. The message of John 14 is 
simply this. Our hearts can be stabilized because we are in union with God. So Holy Spirit, we ask you, Lord, that you would just manifest your presence in an increased way on the inside, even now. Release a fire, Lord. Release the fire of the Holy Spirit on the inside. Just even as you're standing there, just to begin talking to the Lord. The Spirit lives in you. You live in Him. He lives in you. Father, manifest your presence upon our hearts, upon our minds. Some of you are beginning to experience a little bit of a, of a stirring in your spirit. Even now, Lord, I ask you that you would increase that stirring. Increase the activity of the Holy Spirit right now. Release a fire. Father, thank you that you are in us. Would you show us more? Show us more, Lord. Lord, we want to experience more of the truth and the power of you, the Holy One of Israel, living inside of us by the Holy Spirit. Show us more. Show us more, O Holy One of Israel. Show us more. Thank you, Lord, that you give us shalom. Show us more. Show us more of your shalom in our spirit. Would you show us more of your shalom in the places of pain? and uncertainty. Thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord. See, even as you're standing there, just talk to the Lord. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you give peace. And show me more of your peace. I want to experience more of your peace. Let it rule my heart and my mind. Thank you, Lord. Show me more. Oh, you said in your word that your peace would rule my heart. Show me more. Touch me. 
release your peace even now, Lord. I know Jesus, I love you give us your so peace. Reach down and touch me. on the inside. Lord. Show us your peace on the inside. Oh, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Move on our hearts, Lord. Lead me by streams. I draw near and I trust you.
Jesus, you're more than a friend. Jesus, you're more than my heart could ever express. Your love and your grace never fail me. Your merciful touch always heals me. You bring joy to my soul. You bring joy to my soul. My heart longs to worship.
to reach down and touch me. I want to love you.